He's the owner of the world's very first Model S and an early backer of Elon Musk's Tesla and SpaceX. A fast talker with an unconventional investing philosophy who once shadowed Steve Jobs. He's amassed one of the biggest private space collections in the world and spends his days pondering the future of artificial intelligence, genomics, and self-driving cars. Joining me today on Studio 1.0, the venture capitalist and partner at Draper Fisher Jurvetson, Steve Jurvetson. Steve, thank you so much for being here. It's great to have you. Thank you. So I want to start in 1996. Oh dear. When you made an early investment in Hotmail and you bet on email before email was anything, what did you see? Well, it's usually a combination of two things. An entrepreneur that gets me really excited and jumping out of my seat, in this case, Sabir Bhatia and his partner, mm -hmm. Jack Smith, and an idea that was unlike anything I'd seen before, which is, wow, you could have email wherever you go and it wasn't tied to a corporate system or a university server like had been before. That's when the light bulb went off and we invested in what became the first example of viral marketing on the internet. And of course, Microsoft went on to buy Hotmail, DFJ made hundreds of millions of dollars. So I wanna talk about how you became a guy who could make these kinds of predictions and big bets. Um, tell me about where you come from, what kind of kid were you? I don't know if I ever grew up. That's the first thing that jumps to mind. Um, I was born in Arizona, Estonian immigrants who came here. Uh, during the early days of the semiconductor industry. And I guess I was inspired by my dad growing up. I started programming when the Apple II computer first came out. I think there's something intoxicating about that ability to program the machine, to code it, to do things, and have an immediate feedback. Um, unlike other experiments, which take time to learn from, here it's the learning cycle so rapid when you program. You graduated from Stanford first in your class. Mm -hmm. uh, you got a master's in electrical engineering, an MBA at Stanford. I love to learn, and that's what I love about being a venture capitalist, is I'm always learning. And so at school, I, I actually didn't want to leave. I rolled right from my undergraduate degree into a master's that actually even rolled into a PhD, which I didn't intend to take. It just sort of happened. But I eventually had to go get a job, and so I took off then. I guess the hoodies and the dropping yeah. out wasn't as popular back then. So after you got all this schooling, you went on to work at Apple, you worked for Steve Jobs at Next, Steve Jobs tried to recruit you at Pixar. Um, what was your relationship with Steve like? It was a short period of time, but it was pretty intense. He's someone who really has this incredible laser-like focus on whoever he's speaking with and is mesmerized. The things I remember most vividly were the walks that we would go on. I had um, foisted into a bit of a agreement with him that I would study how he does business. So you were like his protege? Well, just as an acolyte, but not that I thought I could be like him, but that I would try to understand him because he's such a fascinating individual. How did you get that front row seat? I just asked him, yeah. Uh, he came to my house to speak um, when I was at Stanford Business School and sat cross-legged in front of the fireplace and stayed for like three hours. And what I remember most vividly is that when he was at Next, he was just obsessed with Apple. So he's CEO of Next, has nothing to do with Apple, he doesn't own a share of Apple, and is just distraught. He, he feels this, this, this visceral pain when Apple's getting beaten around in the public eye or in the press. And What kinds of things would he say? He would always come to the same inevitable conclusion that Apple should buy next, bring him and the next technology and operating system back into Apple. And I just would look at him like he was nuts. Like, what CEO of Apple would ever bring you back and keep their job? Like, who would do that and think, they could survive, and of course, that's exactly what happened. He got back, and boom, you know, CEO that brought him in was gone within months, and he was um, possessed by, and I think always has been with the mass market appeal of the products Apple has. Everyone knows that he has this um, fascination with design, right? But what fascinates me is that at no point did I recall him ever stating like a strategy. It was more like, this is crap, and this is beautiful. And, I, and more specifically, he and Elon Musk as well, which I recently came to learn, have this visceral agitation with imperfection. So tell me about your relationship with Elon. He literally went into debt 
for Tesla, uh, writing checks to make payroll, and the headlines say that you saved him. No, I think he was <laughs> done just fine. But we first met in 96, this was when he was first coming to California, and was pitching Zip2, which was his first startup. I heard it, but we did not invest in Zip2, nor PayPal, although we were trying uh, to invest in PayPal. The relationship then has morphed into one of, you know, it's just the joy of my life to be able to learn and see as he is developing these companies. It's just fascinating. So, as you mentioned, December 2008, he saved Tesla single-handedly. He went into personal debt. He pledged everything he had, the collateral of all of his companies, to backstop loan to invest in Tesla when no one else would. So then when did you come in? The other investors around the table were like, well, okay, I'll do my fraction of the total. Assuming everyone else is in, then I'm in. So it's, a, it's sort of like a herd mentality that if everyone else is in, okay, I'll be in is a simpler question that posed to people. We invested in a way to get them out of the hole. Mm -hmm. And that's how we became an investor in both SpaceX and Tesla. So uh, you guys obviously have such a close relationship. I feel like you have, you have like a mind meld with him hmm. or something. I mean, does he ever say anything to you that you think are absolutely crazy? No, because I'm just are you on the crazy same, as this crazy are does. Are you on the same planet? Tell me about your own interests in space mm -hmm. and you launch rockets in your yard. Tell me about that. Well, so my son, I've been doing that since I think he turned three. We go out to the Black Rock Desert and we build these enormous things that'll go like Mach 2 or twice the speed of sound and have cameras and GPS systems. So really big rockets, rockets people can fit inside. And then I've also converted the whole DFJ uh, lobby and hallways and my office into a space museum. So it's full of artifacts from the Apollo era. Literally a piece of every lunar module that's been to the moon. Elon says that He's going to die on Mars. <laughs> Just not on impact. Is the do, you, <laughs> do you want to die on Mars as well? No, you know, why do you want to die? I mean, it's such a negative place to start. So no, I want to go to the moon. Um, and sooner than we would go to Mars. And not land, but just fly around it in a very low orbit. It's kind of like a, do a spacewalk like Superman, because there's no um, atmosphere. The views are awesome, and it's, you know, a long trip to Mars. Mm -hmm. But for a starter vacation, I think the moon's a much more interesting destination. But you have not been to space yet. No, I've been uh, weightless a couple times, like in zero gravity flights. When's your first flight to space it'll probably be, to be? If it was up to just me, it'd probably be in five or six years, but since you know there's kids and responsibilities, I might wait 10 years. Who wants to be in the first airplane flight, right? You'd rather wait to the fourth or fifth, I think. This perception of, of, of fear, right, is because, you know, this sounds like a dangerous thing, and in rocketry has been. Things blow up, and it's kind of, visual failure in front of everyone. But the goal with SpaceX is to make it as routine as air flight. So make the rocket reusable, uh, so you don't throw it away after each flight, which dramatically lowers the cost. And when the cost comes down, you can fly much more often, gain more experience. SpaceX's Falcon 9 rocket exploded during a launch in, in late June, and that was a huge blow. Um, have they fixed the problem? They believe they have with a very high degree of certainty identified what the problem was, and it's a complex detail of a single little bolt, frankly, inside of a larger tank. Um, so what happened? It failed. But they can just push that aside and put a much uh, sort of a replacement design that won't have that problem. So will SpaceX accomplish this goal of getting to Mars in oh, yeah. the next 15 years? Oh, absolutely. Colony might take, like, you know, 20 years to get started. 20 years to get the mm -hmm. colony started. Mm -hmm. Wow. But, I mean, if they just wanted to, like, send something to Mars and not get it back, they could do that a lot sooner. They could do that within a year or two. You have a Tesla Model S and a Model X. Do you have a preference? Yeah, well, I like them both, and, and not just an S, but the very first S ever made, which is a pretty cool You detail. have the very mm -hmm. first S ever made. Yep. Wow. Yep. The first production car in Elon uh, got the first production Model X. So we have number two and one. How, how's it performing? Oh, it's great. It's great. How many times has your Model S been serviced? Not much. Well, here's what I can tell you. It, I have yet, not, I've yet to replace the brakes, all right? So this 
earliest car. There's no spark plugs, there's no muffler, there's no smog check, there's none of the usual stuff that I used to always get maintenance on. Right. It's like tires. It's really the only thing that has needed, like, right. yeah, I need So attention. what features are you most excited about? Well, I get very excited about autopilot and the future of autonomous driving, because I know, just like when you're first in an electric car, you know this is the future of all vehicles. They're all gonna be electric. Elon knew that before most of us, and anyone who experiences a drive in one of these is like, like the, the lightning bolt goes off in your head. Same with autonomous driving. It's like, it's so obvious. It's gonna be awesome when we look back and like, why did we let our teenage kids drive? 10 years from now, I'm certain we'll look back to the present and say, wow, we thought that was okay. And the way it'll come to market, I think, is as a service. So imagine an Uber or a Lyft-like service without the driver. So low speed, urban, so under 25 miles an hour. Uh, vehicles that almost certainly could not kill someone even if they tried to jump in front of the vehicle. It's the kind of thing that in, in the abstract is scary, and in reality, it's not scary at all. So when will it hit the mainstream? When will I buy a self-driving car? You might not buy one. You might take a ride in one in Vegas if you wanted to within two or three years. Well, now Uber is making its own self-driving exactly. cars. Are you concerned about competition from a company like Uber? Well, no and yes. If you believe, as Elon does, that all vehicles will be electric and all vehicles will be autonomous, which is something I believe, all car companies have to do it or they go out of business. It's almost by definition. If you don't do this, then you won't be in business. And so they should. And so you wish them well and, and you hope that then a whole fleet of different kinds of vehicles will come out, whether it's van shapes or two-person vehicles, bus-like things. No one company can do it all. Right? Do you think Apple is really working on a self-driving car? Yeah, I mean, there's, it's hard to. How optimistic are you about an Apple car? By the year 2022, yeah. Apple's thing is to try to do what somebody's already done already, but do it better. Mm -hmm. and different. Do you think they Sometimes can do they it? Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. We got that watch is not really <laughs> grabbing me, or the Newton, there's been a few messes. You're, you know? So you're not a fan of the Apple Watch? No. No, battery life, for me. Uh, for, I have a lot of watches. I, I actually wear them. Um, and uh, I cannot fathom, in my personal use case, the charging issue. Do you think that Tesla should focus more on lower-priced, more mainstream electric cars? I mean, the Model 3 which is supposed to cost $35,000, but that's a base price. I mean, beyond the, the yeah. cost. Okay, that's, that's a great question. And that is their long-term vision. You either have many, many, many billions of dollars to put into plant and equipment to mass produce something of that scale, mm -hmm. or you do it iterations. If you take a current Model S, which is arguably a very expensive vehicle, mm -hmm. right? If you factor in the total cost of ownership over five or seven years, your fuel costs and the maintenance costs that are so much lower, your total cost of ownership is not that different from a high-end Ford Taurus. So if you start with that next vehicle, let's say a $35,000 vehicle, and you do that same analysis, it might come out to being like a Civic, yeah. you know? And that, to me, starts to sound like a more mainstream vehicle. I know that you are like super fascinated with machine learning. What is your vision for how AI changes our lives, let's say five years from now. For the next five years, and probably a little more than five years, but five-ish years, what we call AI will be these specialty eyes, things that are creepy or magical, depending on your point of view, in their ability to do something that we thought was somewhat human, like drive a car, um, uh, let's say manage our schedule and figure out what we might want to do today. It'll creep into medical imaging analysis and diagnostics in the, in the field of medicine. There'll be all these areas where recognizing a pattern pattern of human behavior, pattern in a picture, pattern in the world around us, traffic patterns, for example. They'll just see things we didn't see. Once they point it out, they'll be like, oh, wow, I can navigate more easily through this uh, traffic or optimize my calendar in a way I just couldn't see before. And I think that will start to acclimate us to what we call AI slowly, as opposed to out of nowhere, boom, you know, 
humanoid robots that are smarter than us right. and take our jobs. Right? So how concerned are you about Google's ambitions in AI? <laughs> how concerned? Does it scare you? A little bit, just because there's a bit of uh, a reckless abandon that uh, almost like a techno-utopian flair with the occasional, you know, when pressed, well, okay, so of course, we'll be cautious, but almost like this is the inevitable trajectory that, you know, technology is our future, we will make good pets for these AIs in the future, and, you know, life will be good, and they'll feed us little kitty treats and stuff, and, you know, there's, there's something almost like a Pollyannish, oh, what could possibly go wrong? The AIs I worry about are the ones that we may not ever know exist, that are purely digital, that are living off vast information feeds, and, operating in a way that we can't even fathom, that ideally, in their case, maybe we may not ever detect, detect their existence. Mm -hmm. So how is your interest in AI and machine learning, how is it playing out in your investment philosophy? I think the way we engineer things is changing, from everything that we can think of as engineering to things that feel more like growing and iterating a solution mm -hmm. very rapidly. What do you mean? To, so imagine, much like a newborn baby that can learn anything, you build literally like a brain in a box. It, it is exposed to photos, like Google's done, and starts to recognize cats on the internet. But that same program could have recognized anything on the internet, or it could have recognized speech, or it could be used to try to find tumors in mammograms, or other pathology slides, or radiology slides. And so you have these generic learning machines in silicon that you now can apply to many different things, and you don't actually know how it works when it's done. Just like we don't know how a brain works, we know how it got there, but we don't know what it is. Could these computers someday take over the world? Well, yeah, but why? Like, because they become smarter than us. Yeah, but like, to what end? I think the long run. Like a lot smarter. Yeah, yeah. But then that's why we make good pets. I mean, like, what they would do is we wouldn't know that we're pets. They would, like, all one day we wake up and like, oh my gosh, I figured out how to do a fusion reactor. And like, I think it was my idea, right? Imagine a gap between us and our pets. Like, my cat thinks it's hunting that little toy mouse with the catnip, right? It thinks it's a fierce hunter, right? But it's in a house, right? Um, and so I think it would be similar. We wouldn't even know. Um, and I think the long arc of human intelligence and cultural evolution is that we have less and less violence over time. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of evidence for that. And I, why would a more intelligent being use childish, like kindergarten level, you know, that's my toy. I want that mm -hmm. thing, as opposed to a much more sophisticated manipulation of us. What do you think about this bubble talk right now and, and valuations. <laughs> Are we at peak unicorn right now? You know, every time you ask a question like that, somewhere a fairy dies. <laughs> <laughs> the unicorn fairies, they, you have to unicorn believe in them. Loses um, its horn or something. No, exactly. No, I don't know. It is interesting how the private funding world is reaching valuations we haven't seen before. We're all trying to be disciplined within, within reason. But no, we, we, since we at DFJ focus on early stage investing and growth stage investing that's way before the unicorn phase, we, meaning billion dollar valuations, we're fine if people want to invest at those kind of prices. In fact, two companies that I'm involved with and on the board have just got offers at this new unicorn phase, and they aren't, so there's new unicorns being born every week. Um, but it doesn't really mean anything per se. I think what is interesting is that IPO window may be shutting. I think the IPO about. is closing. I, yeah, the IPO I window, is it closed? It seems that way, certainly for biotech stocks. I have to ask you about Theranos, and DFJ was an early investor in Theranos now a $10 billion valuation. Do you stand behind Theranos, and would you invest again? So we definitely stand behind Theranos in the sense of we're an investor in it and we want them to succeed, right? So it, we don't, though, have um, 
the answers to the questions that are swirling around right now, which is, can I give you an answer to the questions others are asking? I don't have that. But here's what I can tell you. I remember meeting her when she was still Stanford student. Elizabeth and, Holmes? Mm -hmm, yeah, sorry, Elizabeth Holmes, yeah, the founder. Um, as a teenager, started the company with great passion. Like, um, I remember my partner, Tim, saying in the very first meeting, she's like Steve Jobs. And like, this was long before she was wearing the black turtlenecks. I mean, it was like, I didn't, I didn't see what he was referring to. I even wrote it down on a piece of paper to remind myself that he said that. But it was fascinating. She had that mesmerizing zeal to revolutionize. She wasn't calling it phlebotomy at the time, but the entire field of medicine. And there were these special kinds of needles and things that she was talking about. So we were the very first check. We wrote a $500,000 check uh, before anyone else. Mm -hmm. But she's been somewhat independent and has been going at it all on her own. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have the answer to your question. Do you guys have an observer on the board? Or no. have you had an observer no. on the board? No. I had the same impression that you did. She is, Im she's impressive. She's impressive. Uh, and I want them to succeed. Do you think it can no. recover? Yes. Because so here's the analogy in my draw. There were some reporters that really, well, one in particular, that kept accusing Elon of being a fraud in that darkest of time in 2008 when everything was just looking terrible. And, you know, it's really frustrating to get kicked when you're down by someone on the outside. On the other hand, I understand. You know, I think anyone can survive, and the product and company I hopefully will, because I think they've done something remarkable, and I hope that it will fully see the, you know, its full potential. You guys have such a tough job because you want to invest in breakthrough technologies. Yeah. How do you, at the earliest stages, separate you know, something possible from something impossible. There's a very fine line between stupid and clever. There are people walking in our door every week, that every day sometimes, but certainly a week does not go by, that someone hasn't gotten us equally excited. I get to keep hearing the potential jobs in Wozniak's and the Elon Musk's of the next generation, but some of them are just dead wrong. And you're scratching your head, like, do I believe them or not? Like, do, do I think this can happen? And so I think the best partnerships are when the venture investor or whoever's doing that first round of investment believes almost as passionately as the entrepreneur themselves. So when we first invested in Tesla, I was absolutely convinced that all vehicles would be electric. It wasn't my idea, it was his, but I fully buy it. When I hear him explaining it, he's won me over. Same for autonomous vehicles, same for a lot of things that we invest in. And I've been wrong, and I'll be wrong again, but when it's right, it's really a remarkable thing. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. we talk about the ones that are right. <laughs> so right? Uh, the world of venture capital has got, has changed a lot in the last mm -hmm. few years. Andreessen Horowitz come on, has come on the scene, and. It's like the hot new firm. They've got a lot of people in recruiting and marketing. And oh, right, like an operations right, center. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And yep. where do you see DFJ's place in the hierarchy today versus, you know, 20 years ago when you started? I try not to compete with any of them. So in a healthy economy, you're going to have many different firms that do different things and have different strategies. So if we're doing our job well and if I'm doing my job well, we won't come head to head with the same group over and over again because that might imply we're doing the same thing they are and why would we do that? So I like a different approach, which is looking for industry sectors that aren't over-invested, for the ones where, frankly, no one else is competing for the deal. And the vast majority of investments that I've made, there was no competing offer, mm -hmm. right? Like, no one else really? was running. Really? Yeah, yeah. The question I was going to ask is, how do you get on the top list for every entrepreneur? Yeah, you don't but have to. The sectors that have 18 different firms that are all well-known pursuing the exact same sector, it's just, a, it's a, you know, like a dogfight, right? So the sectors, like when we were first investing in space, there was no one else that was saying they were investing in space. So what I try to do is be visible and vocal, and then they find us. And so I, we don't need the same sort of infrastructure to track down and find the opportunities competing with everyone else. In fact, I think a venture firm is ideally a small team of five 
to seven people, no more. Yeah. I think in almost every endeavor where creativity or decision-making and a sea of ambiguity is needed, the moment you go beyond seven, you're less effective. So uh, what's next for Steve Jervitson? I think what you'll find me learning. One project one of our companies is working on to re-engineer pigs so you can get all harvest their organs for organ transplants to oh, humans wow. by changing the immune system of the pig to be like a human so that we can take their heart, kidney, lungs, and solve the transplant problem. I think the field of biology will infuse the field of information technology. We will grow technologies. We will evolve technologies. We will build things that feel like brains, less like computers. That's how I think we'll push engineering beyond its current limit, which is humans design things they can understand. If you would ask the question, will we one day have something that is smarter than humans, like dramatically smarter than humans, the answer has to be yes. It can't be no. Because if well, the answer was this no. Is already smarter than me? No, 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 no. Like literally smarter than human in every way. Okay. Like, like, has a conversation and is, gives you better answers to your questions than I can and, and what have you. Um, that will inevitably happen if you just give it a billion years of normal evolution. Like, if, to argue that nothing will ever be better than a human means that the long arc of evolution itself, normal, biological yeah. evolution, suddenly ends right now. Like, the buck stops here. And that's obviously not the case. We're going to have really wicked, you know, smart humanoid-like things that whatever we evolve into. So then that just begs the question, why can't we accelerate that process? Now that we understand the process of evolution, what can we do today to rapidly evolve things that surpass us? So that's what you'll be thinking yeah. about. Yeah, 10 uh, years now for sure. Right. I mean, that'll probably already happen. Steve Jervidson of DFJ, thank you so much for thank joining you. us. It's been great to have you here on the show. Great. I'll see you on the moon.